Nothing should ever be set on a bed or chair, said my friend sternly. This statement made me pause before asking, then where on earth could I possibly set my bag down? Away, replied my friend. It should be put away. This wasn't my house. I didn't know where away was. Then again, I didn't know where away was in my house either. It should be put away. This statement has stuck with me for over 20 years. It was expressed with such factual confidence. But what did this friend think whenever we hung out at my house? At my house, a liquid pile of folders, books, and paperwork is poured over every surface. But everything has a place where it belongs. Everything you own, whether you like the object or not, should be able to be placed somewhere where it can be dormant in your house rather than active. Objects need their sleep too. A great big weary feeling takes over whenever I realize something must be put away. All these marbles must be put back into this tub and then carried all the way across the room and set on the shelf. How exhausting! Anything I take the trouble to put away, I will also forget that I own. I wonder if that exhaustion I feel, if it's really just the object's owned exhaustion for having been left out. Uh, I will put the marbles away later. Years later. Years later, it is this year, 2021, and I work in a warehouse. There are four tasks I can get assigned to at the warehouse, but the one I do most days is something called put away. It is exactly what you think it is. Delivering products to their proper numbered locations within alphabetized aisles. I put things away for a living. It's not hard, but at home, Putting things away seems so exhausting, so trivial. And then, I remember Frege's mom, Pat, a woman who started her own spiritual practice she calls put away. I live in a little Cape Cod, 1,200 square feet. It's a little bitty home. Two bedrooms downstairs and an attic converted into a bedroom upstairs and then a regular basement, a big farm kitchen and a little living room. My partner and I have been together 20 years, but we have not lived together. In January of this year, I fell in the middle of the night. She was at her house and I was at my house. I tried calling her and she didn't have her phone on. So I had to call 911 and I went to the emergency room and I had all these stitches. Luckily, it wasn't real serious. It just bled a lot. And in the morning, 
when she saw all my frantic texts, when she put her phone back on, she was horrified and rushed over. By that time I was out of the hospital and she said, we're too old to live apart, I'm moving in. And she moved in that day and has never left. That was just a few weeks before COVID. I always think of that fall as a great blessing. I didn't knock any teeth out or anything. I had a bunch of stitches, but you can hardly even see them. So it was in the scheme of things, a very minor thing, but it, it prompted a major move in our life. Then COVID happened and realized just how small this house is for two adults who are used to having their own houses. So we've had the basement completely remodeled for a suite for her. Big bedroom, living room, and a little kitchenette and an office. Doubled the space in our house. I had been living pretty simply, and now we have a lot of her stuff over here. Plus, we had to move all the stuff from the basement upstairs so they could remodel the basement. The whole house this last year has been churning. All the objects in our house are just churning and being moved from place to place and very chaotic. The basement's almost done and we were able to do it during the pandemic because we're having no contact with the people in the basement. They come in a different door and we don't go down there. So we were able to do it COVID safely, which was a miracle. So we're a week away from her living down there and moving all our stuff down there. When you called and said, oh, are you still doing that put away spiritual practice? I thought, I had completely forgotten about that. <laughs> and I thought, I need that now so badly just to bring order back into my life, into my physical environment, and also my mind mindfulness practices, they ebb and flow. Sometimes we're really on them and other times they drift away. And I think that's just natural and it's okay. I don't feel any shame about it. I'm just happy you reminded me. I was part of a study group where we were going to study creativity and spiritual practices. That was sort of the theme. So everybody had to pick a spiritual practice that they were willing to do for the three or four months we were gonna be in this group together. And then we'd check in about how our practice was going. So other people did very spiritual kind of things. It, maybe it was prayer or meditation or yoga or spiritual reading or, or walking in nature. But I didn't really want to do any of those. I wanted to do something really practical that would help me. My physical life was kind of chaotic. There was junk all over the place. I had been working with a professional organizer for three months every week for four hours, touching a lot of my objects and going through stuff. And it was just such a beautiful therapeutic process. It was really neat because I just kept feeling stuck about letting a lot of things go, but I, I just can't have these many objects. So I came up with this put away practice. I just invented it. I decided one of my dysfunctional traits was that I'd be working with something or working on a little project and it'd be done and then I just leave it in a pile and race on to the next project. I'm a real project person. I like working on projects. I don't like cleaning up after a project. I just would leave it in a pile and pretty soon I had piles all over the place of half finished things. And then I don't have that much space. Then there'd be another pile on top of that pile. And it would be an archaeological dig. I came up with this idea of put away. That was going to be my spiritual practice because the criteria for this spiritual practice is it's something you had to do every day and that mindfulness would be involved in it. So the idea was every time I had something in my hand, say my phone or a scissors or a piece of paper or a coffee cup, when I was done with it, I would pause for a second 
and figure out where does this go? Where should I put this away? Rather than just dump it on the first flat surface I saw, actually see where does a dirty coffee cup go after I'm done drinking my tea? It goes in the dishwasher. Where does my phone go when I'm done using it? I need to find one place for it because I keep losing my phone. Where does the scissors go? It goes in the scissors place. And what I realized in the spiritual practice is so many of the objects in my life didn't have a place. They didn't have a home to put them back. No wonder I wasn't putting them back. So that would be the second phase of the put away thing. If I took that moment to look down at the object in my hands and I thought, where do I put this? And there was no place. My next step was to say, where could I make a home for this? Where would be a good place for the scissors? Maybe in the junk drawer, maybe in my office cabinet. It was very satisfying finding a home for everything. Right now, I've got a big long table that my computer's on and it's just filled with piles of stuff. It's just a horrible mess. But I don't feel much like cleaning up this mess because it's too overwhelming. If I have one thing in my hand, that's finite. I can figure out where does the ruler go? Where does my arthritis cream go? Where does the tape measure go? Surely not on top of a bunch of papers on my desk. Where does my eyeglass spray go? I don't have to look at everything on my desk, just what's in my hand. It's very finite and I, I'm willing to do that. And maybe I'm not willing to do it all day long, but I'm willing to do it for at least part of the day. And then maybe I stop or I forget it or I'm sick of doing it. And then later I pick up the practice again. And it's very comforting. And after a while, after doing it for weeks, it just becomes second nature. And it, it does feel spiritual to me, spiritual in the fact that I think being in the present moment is a very sacred space to be. It's so grounding and it's so real. Dwelling in the past in my head or worrying about the future, those aren't real in the way that this moment is real. This is the moment I have. This is my life. It's in each of these immediate moments. That is how my life is unfolding. And to avoid that, avoid truly being in the moment is to kind of miss out on my life. This is what it is, one moment after another linked together. That's how I came up with the put away practice. I used to belong to the Milwaukee Mindfulness Sangha years ago, and sometimes they would have us do workshops if we wanted to. So I did a workshop, Mindfulness for Pack Rats. A lot of people came and took this class. And one of the activities I had people do was go home and estimate the number of objects that you own. And think of objects as every pencil is one object, every spoon is an object. If it's paper and it's stapled together or clipped together, that's one object. If it's loose paper, each paper piece of paper is one object. I didn't ask people to count. I just asked people to estimate. Then I asked them, write down how many objects you think you could reasonably handle. How many possessions, <laughs> objects, specific objects do you think you could 
reasonably keep track of and keep in the right place. And the difference between those two numbers was just enormous. There was a woman who came in and said, I think I have half a million objects and I think I can reasonably handle 3,000. If you look around, that's a lot of objects. If you look in your garage and your the trunk and the attic and the every object you have in your kitchen and people have so many things every shirt you have every sock you have we have so many objects no wonder we're all having trouble keeping track of them handling them in any kind of reasonable way we've turned our houses into warehouses full of objects and the objects keep on coming in everybody's buying stuff on amazon it's like a steady stream of stuff being delivered to our door I don't know if we have the same steady stream going out the back door. It was like a reality check. Of course I can't handle all the objects I have. There's too many. There's just too many for me who I am to be able to keep track of. And so the solution to that is to reduce the number of objects I have. Years later, I was able to do that after my kids were gone and I had more time. I was able to actually hire somebody to help me do that. Every week for four hours, we got rid of stuff, stuff that I just didn't need anymore or had two of or that were broken or that I don't even know why I had them in the, I had, I had a sledgehammer. I had a sledgehammer in the garage. I, could, I couldn't even lift the sledgehammer. Why on earth did I have a sledgehammer? I don't know where it came from. I don't know why it was there. I just put it out on the curb. Somebody was very happy to get a sledgehammer. There were a lot of things like that. Why on earth do I have a broken waffle maker? I don't know how to fix a waffle maker and I'm not even eating waffles. I must have bought it at a garage sale and it never worked. The cord is frayed. I could electrocute myself. This needs to be just thrown out. <laughs> I did this process for months and months, maybe a whole year. I stopped when we got to the trunk I have of all the mementos from my childhood. I just could not handle that mountain. So I'm hoping I'll do that someday, but they're too loaded with emotion. I just couldn't handle it. The sledgehammer was easy to let go of. One thing that my daughter Ivy did in grade school, it was this great big three panel poster uh, Frisia, the older one, was doing a science project, and Ivy must have been in kindergarten. But they weren't, of course, doing science projects. But she watched us working with Frisia on the science project, and she was determined she was going to do a science project, and it was going to be about our dog. We had a new puppy. She took all these photographs, the dog food and the dog dish and the dog, and then she drew pictures of the dog, and she concocted this experiment somehow about what the dog would be eating. It was just so darling. But it was this huge, big poster with things glued on that were falling off. She's 26 now. I kept it a long time. I think I had it up in the rafters in the basement. I hadn't looked at it. So I took it down. And I thought, can I throw something like this out? I just can't imagine that she would take it to her home if she ever bought a home. I don't, I, I'm not going to display it. And it's just one of many. There were like a dozen science projects, but it was so dear to me. So I looked at it. I enjoyed it. I called a couple friends and read them what she had written on there. She had dictated it to us and we typed it out. It was just so oh, darling. 
I called her up. I had a whole conversation and reminisced about it. Then I took photographs of it and then I threw it out. I just cherished that I had that experience. Hoarding it, I mean, we might as well use the word hoarding it, didn't keep my daughter from growing up. There are days I wish she was a kindergartner and a 26 year old. I wish I could have. 26 versions of her of every year of her life. I enjoyed being with her, but she's not a kindergartner right now. She's the 26 year old that I called to talk about this. We had a really lovely experience. And then I thought I have wrung every bit of joy I can out of this poster board. I can let it go. And it felt really good. Later, I told my sister and she said, how could you let that so I had one moment, one pang, but it's so much more in my mind because I did all that letting go process that I could even remember it now to share it. And I feel, I don't have to have that poster board to feel this lovely feeling about my beautiful, smart daughter. When it was hoarded and stuck up in the rafters in the basement, I'd totally forgotten about it. Going through historic items of your own life does make you think about your own mortality because you feel so clearly ivy is no longer a kindergartner that was one point of time in my life and it is gone and it won't come back then you know this moment right now will be gone and won't come back and it's all moving you closer toward death that can be a very upsetting feeling. So the mindfulness helps you with that, I think. Holding that object in your hand and saying, right now I have my bottle of vitamin E in my hands. Where do the vitamins go? Why, why is it on my desk? It brings you to this moment and there's no scarcity in this moment. When you look at your life as a whole, as it pushes through toward death, you can feel this sense of scarcity like, I didn't get enough of Ivy being a kindergarten. It was so much fun. I want more, 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 but the more is right here in this moment. And that more can be so full. When you're doing that mindfulness and you're really in this moment, it's so expansive and huge. It's like everything. It's so satisfying, total, complete contentment to fully, joyfully be in this moment is huge. It's largesse rather than scarcity. Mm. It's the universe. It's the largesse of the universe. And we rarely dip into it. The universe gives us all this sensation and beauty and... Mm. Mm. My parents grew up very, very poor. I mean, they, during the depression, they, they literally did not have enough to eat. Their wedding pictures, they looked so skinny. It's really, uh, they didn't have many objects at all. My mom, her dad lost three houses during the depression. They couldn't even raise the money to pay the taxes and they'd lose their house. And they ended up living in a trailer, seven people in a, in a construction trailer. I don't even know where they all, how they all found a place to lay down. There were no extra objects. 
and my dad's family was so poor they wouldn't be able to pay the rent and they'd have to leave in the middle of the night and go to the next place for a few months until they couldn't pay the rent he had no objects they just had nothing then they got married and my dad started to make enough money to support them and my mom just became a hoarder like many people who lived through the depression she just wanted a lot of things in case they ran out if she had a waffle maker that broke and they bought a new one she'd keep the old one just in case the new one broke when i had freesia gave birth to freesia my mom had collected little baby t-shirts from garage sales because you can get them for a nickel we should wash them and they're all these beautiful t-shirts but there were hundreds of them hundreds of t-shirts and she said you know i only had a couple t-shirts for you kids when you were born and they were hand-me-down t-shirts and she handed me this gigantic stack of baby t-shirts it was just overwhelming i didn't even want to use t-shirts i just wanted to use shirts if they got dirty when they were eating take them off and put another shirt on i don't think i ever even used t-shirts because they're kind of fussy and hard to get little baby arms into she overdid it she wanted to make sure she didn't run out of anything my dad he didn't turn into wanting to collect stuff. He kind of liked not having a lot of stuff. His desk at work was always completely empty every night. He wasn't attached to items. Somehow during his childhood, he flipped a switch and thought, okay, well, I don't have anything and so maybe it's okay. And I think my mom, her switch was, I don't have anything, but I wish I did. And they just were opposites throughout my childhood. So I have a little bit of both of them in me, which is a good thing. I appreciate the objects I have, but I'm also willing to let go of them. I wonder about my kids. So I often wonder what their connection to objects is. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I hope they don't take the worst of my traits. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I used to keep a few lifetimes worth of printer paper because I didn't own a car. I'd predict impossible scenarios where I would be called upon to teach an in-person letter-writing class to over a thousand participants. I kept a surplus just to avoid having to ask favors of car-driving people should that class arise. But that changed with car ownership. Now if I don't like the particular shade of dark pink some paper that was donated to me came in, I can put all seven boxes of it in my car and dump it on some other carless person. While my car has helped me to thin my hoard, my house still hosts a lot of tired objects that just want to go to bed, but are unfairly kept up, awake, strewn out in the open, by me. A tour of my dining room. My purse leans against a 50-pound bag of salt. My purse has no official spot, just wherever I shuck it, lickety-split, unthinking when I come home. The salt is a hefty crime against the serenity of this room, a sad sight, but not quite as sad as the food and water bowls belonging to our cat, who died last month, sitting on the floor, still right next to it. 
Here's our cluster of contaminated face masks, a handsomely stained rag, three boxes of tools, and the reusable shopping bag I picked up in Paris in 2010, the last time I left the country. I haven't felt the urge to travel since. It seems I'm much happier right here in my house with my gunk freed everywhere. Sitting at the table, there is a cold metal yardstick under my feet and an empty mop bucket to my right. Draped sensuously over the shoulder of the same chair I sit in is a computer cord. The cord looks like it is trying to drip into the mop bucket. This is really frustrating to describe. I want to interrupt this description just to put the snow shovels that are leaning against the wall away into the correct closet. Sitting on a chair across from me at this table is a companion, my husband's red plaid shirt. Beside that shirt is another chair with another plaid shirt sitting on the seat, this one still folded around the cardboard it came gifted in. In the corner is a chair stacked with 12 artworks. Below it are 16 more, plus two rolled-up table runners of woven straw. We shouldn't own table runners, as our table is already overrun, with 10 artworks, a string of blue and green tassels fished from a dumpster, a tube of cortisol cream, packages of origami paper, Two unremarkable poems typewritten on pink paper dated February 22, 2017, an eraser, and the crystal tray I have been trying to figure out how to use for six years. Look, the expensive fish face that a friend didn't want to keep post-divorce, which I like a lot, but it leaks water if used. Notice the halfway polished silver pitcher with the polishing rag still stuffed within. Observe this wad of used packing tape and the pencil that is neither sharp nor dull. This remarkable stack of papers is the lease to a space my husband's business is renting and if you look to the left of that you will discover the very piece of paper on which i scrawled a random mantra from youtube on the day i was trying transcendental meditation out but didn't want to have to pay to get an official mantra this copy of Calvin and Hobbes was set here because Blaine thought I might enjoy it as bathroom reading. Ah, a pair of sunglasses, free sunglasses, advertising a business called Ogura Clutch. The sunglasses nest against a utility knife, a box of light bulbs, and a few packs of nails. Historians? Here is the digital camera I keep because the camera on my phone sucks. Our table is a homeless shelter currently serving this bottle of Windex, some Woodland Walk essential oil, a roll of artist tape, an orange rubber band, the hunk of wood that fell off of something but we have no idea what. 
There is the pin featuring the youthful face of Blaine's father. He wore it at a reunion so his former classmates could recognize his old yearbook photo, if not his aged face. Blaine wore that pin over his heart all day when his father died. A few of the Christmas cards on this table are now mingling with condolence cards. We changed the overhead light of the dining room, but after, we couldn't reattach the metal nub that hides the bare washer. We both tried. No luck. The nub remains on our table. Maybe I will set it on the windowsill, and one day, years from now, wonder, what did this fall off of? Thank you to Pat Walsh for your interview. This has been the Subtle Forces Podcast. <laughs>